So welcome to Project A Plus, everybody. What's your name? My name is Hugh. What's your name? My name is Hunter. How you going? <coughs> well, that was your, that was your answer to the question was to have a, a coughing fit. So you're having some sort of health crisis, uh, whereas I am comparatively okay. Did you uh, have you to work fine this morning? You had to work previous to this. Uh, I have to work tonight. Mm. Well, I just have gotten off of work. Hmm. How was the day? And pretty, pretty boring. <laughs> pretty boring. Hmm. So you uh, typically we discuss movies on this podcast. What movies are we planning on discussing today? So we were originally planning to do a series of um, special episodes uh, in the lead up to episode one hundred. And these episodes were going to be relevant to the history of Project A+, sort of looking back um, and taking stock of our achievements and revisiting some favourite films. Um, We are going to be doing some of that, but um, we're replacing most of the the episodes planned in Series 10 with an entirely new project. So really, you could call it it Season 11 at this point. Maybe Season 11, yeah. And then it goes back to season 10 for episode 100, something like that. And episode 99 too. Yeah, all right, fine. Um, Yeah, so we're embarking on a whole new endeavor. And uh, what is this endeavor? It is, uh, well, we're doing a little bit of a, I wouldn't say a sequel series. It's more of like an expansion series Mm. uh, to our uh, much beloved, I think it's an apt description. Yes. Our much beloved um, music themed uh, episodes, uh, one of which uh, was never released. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, but if you recall in the archives, being Project A-plus a+ super fans like you are, that um, we have done an episode each on uh, two, two of you and my favorite musicians, kind of respectively, being Bob Dylan and David Bow- Bowie. David Bowie. Yep. Um, and, uh, well, we're going to return to that well, except for this time, we're going to bring a couple friends along too. So not only going to revisit the cinematic careers of, of Bowie and Dylan, we're also going to, uh, swing, uh, you know, up, up north to Canada and, uh, check out what our, our good friend, uh, Neil Young is doing and then, uh, go across the pond, uh, to England and stay there for, um, <laughs> Uh, a, a long time when we talk about the Beatles, uh, Pink Floyd, and Pet Shop Boys. Yeah, and then we're going to travel to your neck of the woods. Yeah, and then we're going to travel travel back across the pond and uh, talk about, um, uh, you know, uh, Minneapolis's greatest son, uh, uh, Mr. Prince himself. And then finally uh, reach a conclusion in New York City and talk about those wacky those wacky heads that which talk. But today... Today, we are... Actually, this is uh, my my one of my hometown boys too. That's right. We're going to be talking about again, uh, Mr. Bob 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 Robert uh, Zimmerman, aka uh, Bob Dylan. Yep. You thought we'd exhausted his catalog, but uh, there was more. It turns out. Uh, it turns out uh, the Bob Dylan catalog will never be exhausted. Mm. So, well, uh, what films have we decided to? Um, visit or revisit on this particular uh, Bob Dylan-centric episode. Uh, we will be looking at Richard Marquand's final film from 1987, released posthumously, Hearts of Fire. Hmm. And also, uh, we will be looking at Sam Peckinpah's... Not a sort of posthumous release. 
Sam Peckinpah's uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Yes. Film. Yes. Both of which happen to feature one Bob Dylan. Uh, not two Bob Dylans, unfortunately. That'd be that'd be nope. too much for one movie to take. There are two Bob Dylans in Ronaldo and Clara. But we didn't watch that. I did. Last Not time. for this episode. No. This episode, I assume you did no um, extra research. That is not true, and you know that. Wow. Oh, yeah, you watched that documentary. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk about that uh, as part of our talk of... Uh, Mr. Dylan's uh, first film here, which is uh, Hearts of Fire. Should we should we get right into it? No, we shall not. Oh, do we have some other stuff to do first? <laughs> well, we could we could uh, we could open the vault and uh, bring out a beloved segment. Well, what we should do is uh, waste all the segments, and then in each of the episodes, right after episode hundred, have to select one of them randomly until they like, add up. You know. Hmm. So, uh, do you have this uh, this segments written down? I've got them on, on the noggin. Well, you mean uh, list them out? So, in chronological order, that is the order in which they typically appeared uh, on any given episode of a podcast in which they featured. It would be, first up, um, Armor of Gods. Mm-hmm. Followed by Reels on Meals. Followed by Air Diaries. Um, then we would do the main feature. Okay. That's the and then after the main feature, it would be an installment of Polizza Story. Then it would be the project. Then after okay. the project, it would be an episode of Burn Hollywood Burn featuring the sub segment, um, Box Office Hooray. So is that, uh, is that two separate segments then? Well, it's it's one segment within another segment. So no, it's just one segment then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So you could say Burn Hollywood Burn encompasses Box Office Hooray no matter what. So you can just say it's one segment. Um, and then that was followed by, of course, bonus features, which we've never put in the vault. It's always been a staple no, of the podcast. Never, never, never going to leave. Um, and finally, we had a little segment called uh, Drag On Forever, which was the first segment that we put in the vault. (laughs) It's the reason the vault exists, because of Drag On Forever. And that is all the segments. All right. So we got six segments here. Okay. Are you going to generate a random number? Mm Mm-hmm. First of all, you're hoping that it's not Drag On Forever. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Random.org. Let's see. That sounds like a great website from like 2001. <laughs> Let's see. Okay, integer generator. Generate one random integer. Value between one and six. And, all right, ready? Mm-hmm. Do, a, do a drum roll. Let's just hope it's not six. Do a drum roll. All right. Uh... Uh, it is number two, which is Reels on Meals. Hmm, that's not so bad. <laughs> we have to do it now, right? Well, we'll do it right now. Yeah. Yeah. Reels on Meals on Reels on Meals on Reels. 
So, uh, Meals on Wheels, uh, he, what have you been reels making? Reels on Wheels. Reels on Wheels. <laughs> hey, we're bringing back the classic cuphead. <laughs> right, I would say the name right. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, Hugh, what have you been uh, supping on today? What, what are you doing? Uh, nothing. Okay. Keep it that way. <laughs> um... Uh, so what have I been supping on today? Let's have a think. Let's have a think. I've had one meal today, and that is breakfast, even though it is mm. 2 p.m. and I could have conceivably had lunch by now, but I have not because I had a bit of a late night. Mm. Do you know? Um, uh, I went out with a friend, and then I came back and wow. watched going TV out. for a couple of hours. Going yeah. out. Went out to a wow. bar, and get this. So I haven't wow. been to a bar since the start of coronavirus. Are you right? Were, were you wearing a mask? Uh, no, there's no mask in the bar. Like wow. it was completely normal. It was literally wow. completely normal, like any any bar at any time of year outside of pandemic times. That's really weird. It's very strange. I had to wear a mask like on the train because that's still mandated. Mm. And that's the first time I've actually jumped on a train in, in over a year or any form of public transport, in fact. And um, uh, even still, not everyone on the train was wearing a mask, even though they were supposed to. Um, but yeah, the bar was basically just like any bar. Wow! In pandemic times, quite amazing, quite surreal. But anyway, wow. I'm jealous. Yeah. So the the only meal I've had is breakfast, and it was uh, filter coffee with um, some Greek yogurt. Not in the coffee as as the the solid part of the meal. <laughs> it's it was a bowl of, of of Greek coffee. No, <laughs> a bowl <laughs> of um, Greek yogurt. With uh, some uh, cut up apple in it. Greek coffee and filtered yogurt. So I'm eating yogurt and I'm eating fruit. What's going on? I don't know what's going on. <laughs> you're, you're trying to lose weight. You're becoming healthy. It's not really becoming healthy because I still eat like really unhealthily for um, three days a week straight. Mm. But the rest of the time it's, it's okay. Well, shall I go into my, uh, my, my uh, uh, meals on reels? What have you been stuffing down your maw? Let's see here. So uh, I woke up this morning, had a nice bowl of dry cereal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is kind of a granola cord flake thing. It's vanilla flavored. Very good. Uh, typically, I eat Do you have like three- scars on your gums and, 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 and your, no, the inside you of your mouth? Scars? Yeah. From like these shards of dry cereal that you've been stuffing you down there. You're just gonna fucking your 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 spit <laughs> softens it. What are you talking about? Well, you could also it's use not, milk to, to to do that. Not, yeah, but it's I don't want it to be soggy. <laughs> so you have to like suck on them with your saliva first. Oh, okay, okay, but this is an irrelevant question because normally I eat my cereal with with yogurt. Okay. Oh, I didn't know that actually. Like the but, yogurt's actually mixed in with it? Yeah, because it's like a granola base cereal. Yeah, right. But, yeah, that'd work, actually. But I do, I do only dry cereal except for that. <laughs> so, mm. um, But uh, alas, I was out of Greek yogurt today. So I uh, said so I just had a bowl of cereal. Uh, and then for lunch, I had uh, two half sandwiches. I had one that was uh, Canterbury cheese. Um turkey and arugula uh, with orange marmalade and then i had a cucumber and cream cheese sandwich and I ate that was my lunch 
And for dinner, uh, which I just ate, I had a uh, fried fish sandwich and onion rings. That is what I've been eating today. That was my real fried fish meal. sandwich. Was that just fast food? Um, <laughs> I mean, not. It wasn't like from a fast food place. It was from like a, a sub it shop. T- it was takeaway. Like you didn't yeah, home yeah. cook your own fish. No, no, no. Of course not. And that's that's what I've been eating. Mmm. Mmm. Great segment. <laughs> Glad, yeah, yeah. Glad we brought it back. That's a real sound, real sound meals. Goodbye, meal, real sound meals. Goodbye. <laughs> back into the vault. <laughs> no, I don't want to go back into the vault. <laughs> Shut up, you. Project time, it's project time. 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 It's the start of a new project, and I can't wait to start. Start with um, Hearts on Fire. Oh, we're not going chronologically. No. Okay. We're going chronologically, and this is the order that I watched them. <laughs> Me too. So. All right, let's do it. Okay, hearts, hearts of Fire. Let's see if I can remember this thing. Wait, why would you have trouble remembering it? I'm just talking about the plot. Like, I remember a lot of things about this film, but not necessarily, like, the, the nuts and bolts of the initial setup. But I, I think I can get by. Mm. Um, so it's from 1987, as previously stated, and also as previously stated, it was directed by Richard Marquand, uh, probably most famous for Return of the Jedi. Um, and, uh, it, uh, it's about some music people, one of whom is, uh, played by Fiona, or Fiona Flanagan to give, to give her her full credit, but she goes by just Fiona. It'd be, it would be better if, like, she was, like, super famous and you could just be like, oh yeah, Fiona, where in real life no one knows who she is besides us, I guess. No, well, she was like she was. She did have a career outside of this film. Did you? Okay, fair enough. But did you? Had you heard of her previous Uh, to this? No. Okay, so shut up. Because she retired from the spotlight uh, years ago, so she hasn't been like a going concern in the music industry, Um, or at least as a as a performing artist for quite some time. Well, I, I wonder. I wonder why. But I mean, she might have charted here and there. I think I looked her up. I think I clicked on the the wikipedia hyperlink but who charted the wikipedia page does say that she's best known for hearts of fire so there you go anyway she's in this she's sort of the main character really 
Um, but it, the yeah. film is, is I mean, this, not even uh, sort of. <laughs> She's she, yeah, the main so, okay. character. I'll say it again. Fine. Fine. Okay, so Fine. Fiona is, is the main character in this film. Um, what's her name? Fiona. No, what's the, what's the character she's playing name? Duh. What's the, the character? Yeah, oh, come I on, man. Outside Wikipedia for this. No, no, I can tell. I don't have, you don't have to consult Wikipedia. I know it. Uh, uh, Molly Maguire. There we go. Molly. Molly Maguire. Molly. 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 So Fiona plays Molly. Um, she's a singer in like a, a bar band and guitarist. Um, then she sees Bob Dylan. He's in the crowd. Mm-hmm. He's not playing Bob Dylan. He's playing an aging rocker called Billy. <laughs> what was the last name? Billy Porter. Is that right? Billy. No, his last name was Porter, I think. All right. Um, hey, Billy Porter. Porter. I think that's right. Uh, he's in the crowd. And um, she's trying to entice him on stage. Mm. He's like, yeah, he sort of grumbles <laughs> and then leaves or something. Mm. But then he comes back another night. Um, and, uh, you know, they sing on stage or something, do they? Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And then um, uh, Billy he invites. Pa- Parker. Parker. They hit it off, right? So this aging rocker. It's, par- it's, par- it's Parker. This aging rocker. His and this uh, up, up and coming singer songwriter in Fiona. Well, she's an up and coming. I don't know. Who cares? Me. <laughs> I mean, the only reason I she's care. up and coming is because uh, Bob Dylan is like, "Oh yeah, come join me." It's like she would have gone. Well, you don't know that. that. She might have. Thank she you. might have got somewhere. <laughs> no way. She her, her band was leaving, and she was refusing to go with them. Yeah, but that, that could have been the turning point and she could have uh, forged her own path. <laughs> or, or she could have or she could have continued to work at that dead-end job at the toll booth and struggled and had a miserable life and died at the age of 40 of a heart attack. Yeah, she okay, so she's she's not famous at this particular point in, in, in her career. She's nor with it, a nor does band, it seem like they nor does play it seem like her bars. career does it seem like her career is going anywhere. No, the band is going on tour. Um, to play music that's like sellout music or something. It's like a sellout tour. Not that it's sold out in that the music they're playing is not the music they want to play and it's kind of just a, a cash grab. They're just doing it for the money. She's not into that. She's a real artiste. Mm. Um, so she doesn't go with them. She's stuck in a dead-end job at the toll booth. Um, I think init- at some point after the meeting with Billy... He invites her to come with England uh, with him. Um, she turns him down at first, um, but then after a hard day at the toll booth dealing with her shitty boss, she's like, fuck this. And a I shitty quit. customer. I quit. Shitty boss and shitty customer. So she goes, yeah, fuck this job. Maybe I'll go to London with, uh, with Billy Boy. So she does. Billy, what was his last name? Billy Parker. There you go. And um, Billy Parker's doing like an oldies tour. He's doing his own kind of sellout thing. Um, with some other famous faces, albeit playing fictional characters as well, such as Ronnie Wood of the Rolling Stones. Yeah, that's, that's who that um, was. Such as Richie Havens of Richie Havens fame. Okay, that was a and player I thought also, they were like. 
also playing a promoter, Mr. Ian Jury, of Ian Jury fame. <laughs> you haven't heard of Ian Jury? No. What about Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick? That's probably his biggest hit. No. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me softly. Hit me quick. No. No? Okay. Um, pause, anyway. Pause. Anyway, that was the promoter. That was the injury. Size pause. And they also crossed paths with a famous uh, British rocker. His name is? By, by the name of James Colt, played mm. by one Rupert Everett. Hmm. Sort of a Duran Duran type. Yeah. He's got a mullet. Yeah, sort of new wavy 80s pop singer. Who Fiona is a huge fan of. That's right. And thus we have established something of a love triangle between this aging rocker of a previous generation, Fiona, a star to be, Mm. and our current flavor of the month, James Colt. Is that his name? James Colt? Yeah, James Colt. James Colt. Um... Because uh, they all like Fiona. Fiona likes all of them. Um, but but do, does Billy like James? I guess the, I guess it's like a love triangle where everyone kind of likes each other. I don't know. I don't think Billy likes James especially, but James has re- some respect for Billy. But he's but 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 Bill Billy's Billy. I think I think he sees himself in James. Yeah, and they, and they do joke around at one point. They do share share yeah. a laugh. There's there's an affection between them. I think. Um, they, they share a laugh in a moment that feels like, uh, Dylan corpsing on one of his lines and they just kind of turn the film <laughs> because I don't think he would have been capable of doing a uh, genuine laugh on cue. So, Probably not. Uh, but this isn't really a love triangle. Uh, I don't think, I don't think that's accurate. I think it's supposed to be. One of, one of those, uh, points in that triangle was not particularly, um, <laughs> Uh, Wabi, let's say it like that. Right, Hugh, so uh, do you want me to tell you what I thought about uh, Hearts on Fire? Um, I, I would love for you to tell me what you thought about Hearts on Fire, Hearts of Fire, Hearts of Fire. Oh, Hugh, I, uh, <coughs> I was um, not particularly looking forward to watching this film. Why not? <laughs> well, it's a forgotten 80s romantic film. Sorry to a musician who I'd never heard of before. And but who you Dylan. learned to love via Marston Anonymous, so I don't see why you wouldn't no, be looking not, forward not, to this. Not, not Dylan. <laughs> well, I learned to love through uh, Rolling Thunder Picture Show. Is that the fuck you guys yeah. Rolling Thunder Review. Yeah, that's it. Um, but, uh, you know what, I thought this movie was pretty amusing for the first, uh, I'd say like 40 minutes or so. I was, I was amused. Um, but as soon as uh, Dylan left the film, I was, I was uh, pretty bored. Uh, there's one extremely strange and hilarious scene that happens. Uh, but besides that, I was, uh, you know what, uh, this would have been better. This movie would have been better if it, instead of having been like a sort of age-appropriate relationship, uh, which eventually develops between... Uh, uh, Molly and uh, James Colt. Um, they had decided to go full bore, as it seems to hint in the beginning, 
with a uh, extremely gross uh, relationship between uh, Dylan and uh, Molly. But alas, uh, such a thing does not happen. Uh, and for that reason, I was uh, a little disappointed. Um, you know, I don't think, uh, I mean, I guess uh, Brent Everett's a decent enough actor, but uh, Fiona is not someone that I thought was particularly uh, captivating screen presence. Um, and uh, so I was, uh, yeah, I'd say uh, uh, entertained basically whatever Dylan was on screen just because of his the weird energy that he has. <laughs> And all was like all the bizarre outfits that they put him in. Uh, I really enjoyed that. The fact that he seemed like he didn't want to be there was also it felt felt like a positive in my book. Um, <laughs> I thought most of the music performance was really bad. I was not into it at all. Um, so I'd say uh, overall kind of a mixed bag, tending towards negative. Uh, what you what mm. did you think? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um. So first of all, we should just say that uh, we didn't watch this in uh, the most <laughs> ideal of conditions or the, the best of formats, <laughs> rather. But we, we watched it in the only of formats. <laughs> so, yeah, this is the version. This is not like a, a, an illegitimate version uh, in either of our cases that we watched. Um, I we rented would, this We would never via... watch an illegitimate version in our, on our podcast. No, um, I watched this via Apple Plus. I paid money to rent this. Yes, did I. So you would expect it to be the, the proper version, right? Alas. Um, it appears to have been um, ripped from a VHS tape. Yes. No, I, I, I think maybe a standard def, like, Panascan DVD, actually. A Panascan DVD, you reckon? Yeah, just because it seems like it would be a little higher quality than a VHS rip, but I don't know. But anyway, yeah, it's not the correct it's aspect ratio in which the film was actually shot. Yes. It's in, in a 4-3 television format. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that robs whatever visual flair Richard Marquand brought to it and makes it kind of difficult to discern um, what sort of visual characteristics uh, it, it should have had. Yeah, I don't know if it would have changed my opinion, especially to have seated on that, but... What I'm trying to say is I don't think we can be a fair judge of, <laughs> of the everything that uh, the Richard Marquand brought to this project because we <laughs> did not see his vision correctly. We don't see how he was actually composing the shots properly. It was all kind of rudimentarily just propped out. Yeah, yeah. I'm very invested in the, uh, you know, the, the guy who Luke is hired to push around in Richard the Jedi, <laughs> uh, his, his arch visual style. Um, but anyway, that aside, what was your question? Did I like this? What did I <laughs> yeah, think of it? Yep, yep, yep. I guess similarly to, to, to what you said, uh, the first stretch of this film is very enjoyable um, for Bob Dylan's presence and his function in this uh, film. Um, like I was cackling to myself from from the early scenes <laughs> of this in which he appears. <laughs> yeah. And just the way that he gives absolutely nothing <laughs> yeah yep. is is peculiar is um is enjoyable i think like there, there is fun to be had just watching him mm-hmm. um kind of destroy every scene <laughs> which he's in yeah. and the way that they have to kind of work around uh his limitations his, as an actor non non-presence yeah you know they, they clearly at some point after they'd done a couple of takes they they would have re- realized we're not going to get anything more from this we'll just have to do with that take yeah 
So a lot of it feels like outtakes that you would have gone, mm. okay, cut, let's let's do that again and, you know, kind of helped Dylan along a little bit more. There's no helping Dylan along. As well as stuff that seems to have been like uh, half salvaged using ADR and, and such. So he's a funny presence in this film. But I think this film is a good il- illustration of, um, of how... <laughs> not to make a movie. <laughs> you can't ever be objective when you're talking about any any work of art like the work yeah. of the work provides you with something and you yeah. also bring a lot of your own baggage to bear um and that influences how you receive the film mm. um and it's always worth remembering that even even if it is obvious and uh not falling for the trap of trying to be objective um in our assessment of this film um and i don't think it's a criticism to the filmmakers to say that that my enjoyment of this film stems largely from my relationship to Bob Dylan and my enjoyment watching him attempt to act. That's not a slide on the film, but it just is what it is. That was just my experience of this this work. And uh, on that basis, I did have a pretty good time for most of this film. I agree that when he like disappears from the narrative, it's something less interesting. I think actually that um, of the three principal actors in this love triangle, Fiona comes out the strongest, even if she's not a particularly strong actor on the evidence of this film. Yeah, I was not of use. I was not... Because obviously Bob, Bob Dylan is not really working as, as he's supposed to. Yeah. If we can uh, intuit uh, the, the filmmaker's intentions. And also, I don't think that uh, Rupert Everett puts in a good performance at all. Like, he's pretty terrible uh, with his... Um, you know, London accent. His dub character, yeah. I, I don't think he does the accent well at all, which was kind of surprising. It seemed more like an American trying to do that accent. Where is he from? I mean, he's, he's English, but he's got like a posh accent. Yeah. And he's putting on that kind of, um, I don't want to say Cockney, but that kind of Cockney-esque, like, London accent. Mm. Like, hello, that kind of uh, accent. Hello. It's me, James <laughs> Coat. What is it, like a South London accent? I don't know what to call it. Dude, I don't fucking know. Or North, I don't know. (laughs) Or EastEnders, I guess. That EastEnders accent. But, like, the sort of accent that they would have as a... If they had a punk character, a British punk character, that's the accent they would use for him. Even though he's playing a New Wave rocker and a lot of them were posh, so he could have just used his own accent. This is really funny. Read a little bit about Rupert Everett. That's that's an interest into your... Into your... um, into your uh, commentary, but uh, so here. By which you mean up. to intercede into your commentary, colon. Here is what I'm going to say. Yeah. Uh, Everett is a patron of the British Monar- Monarchist Society and Foundation. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. <clears throat> Despite being an openly gay man, Everett does not consider himself part of the gay community. Has been an outspoken critic of the introduction of same-sex marriage. Seeking, I wove the heterosexual weddings, the wedding cake, the party, the champagne, the inevitable wars two years later. It's just a waste of time in the heterosexual world. In the homosexual world, I per- would find it personally beyond tragic if we want to ape this institution. So that is so clearly a disaster. So that's pretty fun. Hmm. <laughs> Apparently, um, he identified as uh, trans during his childhood, and he dressed as a girl from age 6 to 14. Uh, and then he stopped identifying as a female when he turned 15, and then and now uh, expresses opposition to the use of hormones on children. So, good stuff. 
So that seems like a fun character. So from trans to turf, <laughs> the Rupert Everett story. <clears throat> anyway, anyway. I mean, he he, he does bring he does bring like a, a campy energy to the performance that mm. befits the material, but um, I couldn't really get past the accent. I found I found it distracting mm. and. I had to doubt did not bother me, also I thought it was bad, so I didn't really care one way or the other. Fiona at least brings some like energy to the film, I think. Um, and outside uh, I thought, of the I thought brief, she was I thought she was really annoyed, actually. Outside of the all too brief um, performance of uh, Richie Havens, um, she supplies the only like musical life, um, like when she sings like the the title track and stuff. Not that I think it was especially good song, but um, no, I was not I was not impressed. The, the Dylan performances are pretty. <laughs> pretty lackluster um and and come from uh an era in which um <laughs> he was especially not uh, prolific yeah it was, it was it's it's one of his more um obnoxious modes i think mm. well i have to i have to disagree with you about the uh, quality of fiona's performance i thought she was really greedy and i <laughs> really found her like uh uh you know <laughs> The like working class American accent that she was putting on to be really like annoying, irritating, kind of in an amusing way uh, on some level. But uh, I, I was not a fan, I have to say. So I'm anti Fiona. I didn't really understand the uh, <laughs> the appeal that she would have either to Dylan or to uh, to to James Cold. <laughs> it's difficult to understand the appeal that any of the characters have to any of the other characters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it's fair to say. Um, also, I, th- I thought it was really strange that they took, uh, I think it's just, it, I mean, I don't know if, if it was just like an alternate version of that, but they took like the soft sell version of Tainted Love and that was like James Cole's big hit. I, I thought that was really weird. I did not get that at all. Well, the, they, they took the soft sell arrangement of Tainted Love yeah. and did a version possibly with actually Rupert Everett singing, so... I think it was Rupert Everett singing. It's just, it's just like strange to me that they did that as opposed to just having like a original song, you know. Mm. And let um, us not forget who recorded the original version and um, who. I already know this, bro. You can't, you can't get above me. But the podcast is, may not. Well, it's uh, Gloria Jones, the uh, Paramore, right. and. Uh, uh, mother Paramore? of the child of uh, Mark Mark Bowen. She was older than him and an artist in her own right. <laughs> Paramore just means lover, bro. It's not derogatory. It doesn't just mean lover. <laughs> yeah, it does. Let's look it up. <laughs> a lover. <laughs> I don't think Especially it's Especially if you're a partner of a married person. I guess that is true, actually. Oh, so, so why don't you... Why but don't it you works just, both ways. Like they why don't you just when shut the fuck Mark, up? When Mark Bolan and Gloria Jones got together, they were both married. So, so, so why don't you why don't you shut up? <laughs> so they were one another's paramours. Okay. Oh, sorry, you had to you had to oh, you had to be so woke. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, yeah, Gloria Jones, who, who is the mother of, of Bolan's child, and an artist and a musician, her own right. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, I mean, that's relevant because the reason we're mentioning her is because <laughs> she was a recording artist and she recorded the original version of Kang to Pop. Yeah, yeah. But but if she hadn't been um, touched by Bowen Seed... Then I wouldn't she, care. Yeah, you wouldn't care. So why don't you shut up? <laughs> um, all right, so uh, back to the, the talkie. Do you want to talk about the strangest scene in this film? All right, go ahead. <laughs> Which is, uh, so eventually, uh, you know, uh, James Colt and Fiona get into a love affair, and he brings her on tour. One of his biggest fans is this blind woman who follows him, follows him around wherever he goes. Uh, and he's like, oh, yeah, she's she's the only one that, that understands the music. Um, because she's blind, she can't. She can't see. So her sense of her sense of hearing is especially sharp, right? So she understands James Colt music on a, another level. But uh, so she hears word that uh, he has been, um, you know, fooling around with Miss Fiona, and she decides to assassinate him. I forgot about that whole bit. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like that was like a dream I had, but I guess it wasn't the film. <laughs> no, <laughs> it really does not fit in with any other uh, any other part of the movie at all, which is very sort of like uh, typical non-violent. But basically, she pulls a gun on him, and you think it'd be pretty easy to dodge a uh, bullet from a gun that's being shot by a blind person, but you know they seem to take it pretty seriously. Um, maybe she's like Daredevil. Um, but uh, she also has a cool visor on that kind of reminded me of Jordy's visor in The Next Generation. Mm. Yeah, so uh, James is like, no, don't, don't shoot me. Don't shoot me, love. Come on. Give me the gun. Uh, and instead, she decides to commit suicide in front of him. And he gets uh, splattered with her blood. Oh, I forgot all about that. <laughs> it comes, oh comes out of absolutely nowhere. <laughs> and you're just like, what the hell is happening? It came so much out of nowhere that I forgot it was even part of the film. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's uh, uh, extremely strange. So, so in the back half of the movie, that's probably the only scene that had my interest until, until she goes back, mm. to, back to Dylan. Um, that feels like a legacy of the fact that... Um, there was an original version of this screenplay and the screenwriter for that has no credit and it was rewritten by um, Joe Esterhaus. Joe Esterhaus, yeah. And that, that might have been a legacy of an earlier version or something that, that had a yeah, more made, substantial role. And, yeah. But it, it felt, yeah, it felt bizarre and out of place. Just like Dylan. <laughs> yeah. And it, just like Dylan, it's, it's amusing and charming. It's, it's on, on this and out of place this. Um, did you pick up a couple of the, a couple of interesting um, illusions in this film? Ooh, I, I picked up one anyway. There, there was a marquee at a cinema at one point that was showing one Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. A film that we're talking about later. Yeah, I, I did see that. Uh, there's also a reference to um, Billy. Or Billy makes a joke a joke about not winning a Nobel Prize. And oh yeah, well, that's not really that's not really a reference. <laughs> Famously, Dylan went on to win a Nobel Prize. So. <laughs> he went on to be the only musician to have ever won a Nobel Prize. <laughs> mm. All right, so uh, shall we um, break out the trivia questions? Before we get to that, I do just want to mention the fact that uh, there was a documentary made by the BBC during the making of this film titled Getting to Dylan, uh, which, I, which I watched in preparation for this discussion. And uh, I was quite surprised that it's uh, so strong. 
which isn't to credit the BBC too much because it's framed like a lot of um, bad documentaries around the filmmakers' attempts to interview the subject, mm. which they tease like early on. They're like, oh, we may not get to, it's going to be an ongoing quest and then we'll find out. Whereas like, obviously if they're, if they're at the point of editing the documentary, they know whether they got the interview or not. So mm. it's kind of just annoying that they try and um, create that sense of suspense. Anyway, they do end up interviewing Dylan. Mm. Um, the early scenes of the documentary are the most relevant to our discussion because they, they show Dylan fronting a, a press conference regarding this film. Uh, and that's probably the most uh, amusing part because he gets um, he gets these terrible questions <laughs> by these British journalists where they're like, why are you debasing yourself? You should write your own film. You're one of the greatest writers of your generation. <laughs> <laughs> And, and luckily, and I, I really, I really hope, I, re, I really hope that was the seed that eventually germinated into writing uh, Mass and Anonymous. Yes, yes, and we obviously, obviously, we know that he would later go on to write one of the greatest films ever made. So it's it's kind of interesting to watch uh, with that armed with that knowledge. But um, like, you can hey, kind man, of maybe I can maybe maybe I can write a movie. You can understand, like uh, once again, why Dylan acts the way he does with the press when you uh, listen to some of the questions that he has to field mm. um, so often. It's just like the Edsel the point where you're like, "What? What could you possibly answer to that yeah. question? It's such a, it's such an obnoxious question." Yeah, the press, um, does, and the press does. His responses that. are really, are really funny, actually, just because he seems clearly like fatigued and sort of baffled by the line of questioning they mm. um, subject him to. So there's a moment in the documentary where uh, Rupert Everett appears and they ask him, you know, why did you uh, want to be in this film? And his response was because Christopher Lambert dropped out. <laughs> wow, that would have been better. Yeah, so there you go. <laughs> I can't even imagine. <laughs> what? What would... What, what, what does it even look like? <laughs> it is me, the British musician. <laughs> I mean, I, mean uh, I pronounced his name wrong, but um, Rupert Everett correctly pronounced it uh, Christopher Lambert. Lambert. He's a fancy lad, you know. Very much mean he's a bar, I guess. Um... And there's a lot of interesting behind-the-scenes footage where you see, like, um, Dylan doing a couple of takes of various scenes that we've seen in the film. And the funny thing is um, there's no difference between, like, the actual outtakes that are part of this documentary and the <laughs> takes in the film, except for the ones where he doesn't say the line that he was supposed to and has to do it again. Uh, and it's quite amusing to have, like, Richard Mark on there going, oh, great, great work, great work, Bob, and saying, Bob's such a sweetheart, and just ha- <laughs> have to sort of cajole this, like, just, just non-performance out of him. Just thinking about how he's going to die of a stroke in a couple of months, you know, be like, oh, sweet, sweet Roy. This is my last act of expression on this ad. <laughs> thank, thank God. Um, so that's really, that's really uh uh, amusing to watch, I think. Um, but then they do get the actual interview with Dylan, and um, you know he's being typically evasive at first, and um, he he's like sketching the interviewer, and that's mm. kind of the way that he gets to sort of reframe the gaze upon him by drawing the interviewer the whole time they're talking and sort of giving his usual cryptic half answers. But he kind of opens up, 
And not that anything he says is especially um, interesting or insightful, really, but it feels like one of the most open interviews I've ever seen him give on camera. Mm. And there is something kind of melancholic about the documentary by the end um, that I found oddly touching. And um, it ends with this nice scene where he's giving interviews to a bunch of people, including a, a famous wrestler. Mm. Um, I think he's called Grizzly or something. I don't really know much about wrestling. But anyway, uh, at one point, Dylan quips, this movie will probably be better than the other movie. And, you know, he's kind of right. So <laughs> so there you go. So I, 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 if, if you're a Dylan fan, it's worth watching Hearts of Fire. It is fun. Um, but it's definitely worth also watching the BBC documentary Getting to Dylan. The end. It's so trivia. <laughs> Though the film is set in Pennsylvania and in England, the film wasn't actually shot in the United States. Can you tell me which nation doubled for the United States? Canada. Oh, that's right. I'm going to take a drink of my, my water real quick. I know that because it's seen the documentary. Mm. And probably Wikipedia. All right. All right, you're going to get, uh, you're going to get this one, unfortunately. What is Bob Dylan's character's full name in Hearts of Fire? <laughs> uh, Billy Parker. <laughs> Correct. I'll drink right. tea. Cheers. Okay. <clears throat> Dylan was originally contracted to write four original song songs. Can you tell me how many songs he ended up delivering and how many were actually or- original? Uh... I'm assuming he wrote two songs for the film that were original and one that was not written by him, which was the uh, song about being older than the other person. So three and two original and one not. Uh, I guess that technically is right. Yeah. The information I read said one, two original and one cover. Yeah. No, but it wasn't the one that you were talking about. Oh, it's a different one. It was the usual. Yeah. So, but you still got it right. Okay, sweet. Even if you, even if you were wrong. <laughs> well, that song is also a cover, but I guess it wasn't part of his contract, so that's all right. But, I mean, I don't think it was, that wasn't what the, a song that he delivered. That's not like one that he... That he might have been from the film for. itself, yeah. Yeah. He did the original Night After, his two original songs were Night After Night and Had a Dream About You, Baby. Yeah. He later released an alternative version of How Did You About You, Baby, on the 1988 album Down in the Groove, which I assume you've not listened to and no one's listened to. Um, Down in the Groove I own. Oh, really? So it's, the, it's notoriously, yeah. there's, there's, there's like two, re- oh, maybe, actually, I'm not sure which one I own, actually. So the two records of at least his 80s run that people consider the worst are Knocked Out, Loaded, and Down in the Groove. But one of them has one of his best songs on it, so that's why I bought it. What's that best song? Um, Brownsville Girl. That is going to be knocked out one of them. Okay, know. so it's not on. So Down in the Groove might just be the straight up worst then. <laughs> well, you haven't listened to it, so you can't say it for sure. No, I haven't. You should listen to it. Oh, that's the one with Ugliest Girl in the World on it. 
Sounds great. All right, uh, you got a trivia question for me? I do. You ready for this one? Right, I guess I have to take a drink first. All right, let's hear it. What is Fiona's character's full name in Hearts of Fire? <laughs> you fucking kidding me? Uh, Molly Maguire. So yes, you, and you might not have gotten these right if we didn't already cover this shit when I was trying to stop That's, that's the not film true. I already knew what they were before that. <laughs> anyway, your question. I'll drink. <clears throat> Original screenwriter Scott Richardson didn't have many credits after Hearts of Fire. However, he was part of an art department of a certain mega franchise in the early 2000s. Can you tell me which franchise this is? Lord of the Rings? <laughs> yeah, you got it. Really? <laughs> nice, nice guess, yeah. He is credited as... Um, as Yep, he is credited as Greens in all three of the original Lord of the Rings movies. <laughs> wow. So I'm going to take a drink. Nice. Nice guess. We're getting them all right this time. <laughs> all right, but now it's time to break that uh, streak. What oh, yeah. is Rupert Everett's character's full name? <laughs> fire. Are you kidding me? The James Colt. So, yeah. See, when you got when you got when you got Billy Parker's name wrong earlier, I was going to stick with Billy Porter, and I hope you wouldn't check, but you did check. So, I didn't even check. I just I just remembered it. All right. Right. <clears throat> Parker. All right, we're moving on. To Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. Did people talk like this back then? I feel hollow as a ghost. I can't do that take again. I can't remember who introduced it last time. <laughs> you introduced it this time because you have um, more information about the plot that you ah, discovered. Right. All right, so uh, Pat and Garrett, I'll, I'll do the ooze in the background while you read the plot. How about we do that? You should, just, you should just do the entire song. Um, so, uh, Pat Mama, Garrett, take the badge right. off me. Okay, but first I'm going to lower the volume on you so I can... <laughs> I can't use it anymore. That was, that's terrible. Oh, no, you got to take that again. I'll do a proper impression of him when I do the song, right? No, no, but you got you to do, do a better impression now. See, because I'm trying, I'm, I'm, I'm burdened by the fact that I have specific knowledge and uh, familiarity with each phase of his career where his voice is, is uniquely um, different. Okay. So um, I try and be too specific and then it ends up uh, not sounding quite right. But anyway, right. I'll, I'll give I'm gonna, it I'm going to turn your volume down. Mama, and, take this okay. badge from me. So, um, uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid is a 1973 anymore. Western movie directed by Sam Peckinpah of The Wild Bunch and um, Cross of Iron, other films. You already stopped. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
the entire time. Lyrics, except for the chorus. <laughs> Feel like entire... I'm knocking look, on look up, look up the Look up the lyrics and, and, and just sing them. Come on. This is All right, hang on. Give me, give me one second. Let's, we have to take this again. I'll do it properly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, all right. Okay. All right. Are you ready? Got it? <clears throat> you ready? <laughs> uh, all right. So the uh, other film we watched today for our Dylan-centric project is a film that uh, Dylan had a supporting role in. I guess he also had a supporting role in uh, Hearts of Fire, kind of disappointingly. Um, but uh, this is a film called Pat, Eric, and Billy the Kid, uh, which is directed by Sam Peckinpah, who's directed such other Western classics as The Wild Bunch and uh, The Ballad of Cable Hope or some shit. Um, so, uh, alas, uh, <laughs> Bob Dylan plays neither Billy the Kid nor Pat Garrett. Um, in fact, uh, James Coborn plays Pat Garrett and Chris Christopherson plays Billy the Kid. Uh, and as far as I can determine, this is sort of a uh, unique take on them because it makes them sort of um, previous outlaws together. Uh, let's see here. So the plot is basically that uh, the film starts in 1909 um, when uh, uh, Pat Garrett is uh, working for some other woman and gets assassinated. Um, but and this is the part. This is the part where uh, the new information about the plot comes in. I don't know if you can hear me right now. If you take it up yet. But um, one of the people who assassinates them is actually the the wiener guy who who tries to kill. Uh, Kill Billy the Kid later in the film, like the company guy, which I did not realize in the film itself. But um, so basically, uh, from there, the film flashes back, uh, and uh, Pat Garrett has made the um, uh, sheriff of uh, Old Fort Sumner, apparently. And Pat Garrett. And Billy the Kid's like hanging out, you know, shooting chickens. And Pat Garrett's like, okay, you know, now I'm sure you gotta get out of here six days. And uh, six days later, he comes and assassinates uh, some of uh, Billy the Kid's associates and then um, takes Billy the Kid to jail. And uh, then, uh, what do you know what? Billy the Kid breaks out and uh, Pat Garrett has to chase him down. And that's basically the movie. <laughs> and he encounters okay. all sorts of uh, stuff over the course of it. Um, Dylan doesn't come in until kind of, well, I guess you see him pretty early, um, but uh, he doesn't, uh, his character isn't really known until uh, till later. Um, he plays a character named Alias uh, in a, let's say, annoying role. Um, but uh, so he, uh, all that being said, what did you think of uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the, Kill- Billy the Kid? So I couldn't hear any of your plot synopsis. So can uh, you tell me what was the thing that you learned from yes. reading the Wikipedia summary that you didn't actually glean from the film itself? So um, towards the end of his quest, uh, Garrett is joined by a um, representative from the companies that, or I guess not the companies, they, like the, the the county that he's working in, that he's the sheriff, is, is like run by these cattle barons. The second and deputy guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it, apparently he is one of the guys who is assassinating Garrett at the beginning of the film, which I did not realize at all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I read that as well. Yeah, actually, I didn't realize that either. 
Because yeah. it's not clear at that point because you barely see the person who shoots him. Yeah, well, you know, very, like, very fleetingly in a flashback, flash forward, yeah. flashback thing. Yeah. Um, anyway, what do you think of Backyard Boy the Kid? Um, uh, I'll talk about it as a film first, I guess. And then we'll talk about Dylan separately. Knock, knock, knocking on heaven. But, um, you know, this is one of the famous uh, revisionist westerns. Um, and certainly mm. from a, a particular point onwards, all westerns have been revisionist westerns. So it's about yeah. the twilight of the old west. I think even the old westerns were often about this anyway. Mm. Um, and the transition to modern American modernization. Mm. And that's kind of embodied in, in the, the two characters in, of the title um, who were former friends. Mm. One of them remains an outlaw till death and the other is uh, reformed and has become a conservative lawman chasing down his old buddy. Because there's no place for the, the outlaw anymore. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Anyway, that's that's all nonsense. Which I've never I've never been a huge fan of revisionist westerns. I never like some of them. And but like you know, it's it's a pretty enjoyable film, uh, pretty handsomely staged. Um, I was uh, reasonably entertained for maybe the first half, and then I was like, yeah, I, I get this. Like, there's not <laughs> not much yeah. going on beyond a certain point, and um, I think some of the thematic stuff is a bit awkwardly. Um, explicated in the mouths of some of the characters at points. Mm. Let's just look up that word and see if it's uh, not... Uh, okay, that was a, a bad uh, choice of word, but I, I think you understand what I meant. Yeah, yeah. This is sort of uh, expounded upon explicitly. Yeah. It's, a, it's a bit too explicit and it becomes a bit leading um, at certain stages of this film. Um, and a bit obvious and, you know, you kind of get the perspective yeah. of the film pretty early on and then you're just kind yeah, of going yeah, through okay. the motions until Billy the Kid finally gets shot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but there are some good scenes along the way. Um, we'll talk about Dylan mm. separately. We're saving mm. him. Yeah. Uh, what did you think? Yeah, it's, uh, I basically agree with you. I'm not like the biggest fan of revisionist westerns. I mean, you know, obviously it's the genre like any other, so there's good and bad examples, but... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think I think both uh, Coburn and Chris Christopherson are pretty good, you know, I agree. here. Uh, and they have a good rapport in the couple of seasons they share together. Uh, enough to make you wish there were more, actually, I think. Yeah. It's uh, kind of strange. Um, not that I don't... I, I, I think it still worked, um, basically, as a narrative. But it's kind of strange yeah. that, that, like, you're introduced to the fact that they were former friends and stuff, like, very briefly... And the rest yeah. of the film is is Coburn chasing I mean, I could, him down. I, I could see if a way to do it, like in a more interesting way. Like maybe if there was like it was like you know uh, seeded with uh, flashbacks or something like that, or that you discovered the previous relationship along the way, not yeah. even necessarily through flashbacks. It could have been, yeah. or if they just had like means, one. But- one scene together in the beginning, and that that's like you know you'd have to have it be like a really powerful scene, and that's enough to like do it and then you and i also think the way that they like bifurcate the film was kind of or the way that pegger paul like bifurcated the film was kind of unsuccessful in a way mm. where i was kind of like i think it would be more i would i would have enjoyed it more if it had just been following pat garrett as he's like chasing down billy the kid you know 
the fact that you like cut between them kind of uh, weave in sort of some of the uh, uh, narrative tension, you know, and you're just kind of like, mm. you know, just fucking, I mean, you know, it's 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 like a trap, like you know, it's gonna happen, fucking happen, but you're just kind of like, okay, like you know, I, I get it, I just I just don't really, <laughs> you know, um, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think there's some really great little like vignettes that that Pick and Paul um, stages. I really like this scene in particular with the uh, other sheriff who gets uh, fucking uh, aced by those those uh, outlaws. Mm, <laughs> then, with the uh, famous knocking knock knock knocking on heaven's yeah. door. Yeah, needle that's good drop. Stuff. That's 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 a good use of that music. Um, and it's it's kind of like crazy to me that Peck and Paul didn't want to use it at all because it's like such a good song and it, like really fits the mood of the film. I think. Yeah, that is on, actually. Because it really works, I think. Um, I mean, even though I think uh, the second use of it, I was like, okay, whatever, you know? I agree. I don't think it should have been there twice. (laughs) Um, But the the first usage, I I really hit that. that, No, that's probably the highlight of the film. And I feel like that that scene really contains all the film's, like, themes in in microcosm. And I was like, okay, this is is good. After that, I was like, you know, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's, let's get it. Go ahead and kill him. Uh, I wasn't. I wasn't a fan of the f- misogyny that was pretty evident in the movie. No, I have to say, God, no. uh, like there's this one scene where um, basically uh, Jay's court covert slaps a prostitute to get to get information about Billy the Kid, and they just immediately have sex. And I was like, oh no, oh no, <laughs> no, thank you. It's like um, this huge orgy with all the um, yeah, the workers of this the, um, bordello. Yeah. But the way like it portrays them as also like happy and glad to be there and be part of it with this guy, even yeah. the woman who just got slapped by him and stuff was very uh, I mean, whatever you could be a off-putting. that's uh, yeah and the fact that like you know uh, I, either the women in this movie are, are prostitutes or you know it's it's Pat Garrett's like uptight wife who doesn't don't doesn't understand that he's he's going off to do sheriff and he can't can't mm. be a, a petty home you know. And uh, I was uh, not a, not a fan of that. Um, so that kind of uh, knocked it down a little bit too. <laughs> um, but I mean, then again, I, I do think uh, you know that, that's probably true. It's true to the character that he's presenting. So I don't know. Yeah, but it, it does seep into the film itself to a certain degree. Um, well, I, th- I think the counter to that perspective, because this is this, the thing that people say about these type of films, like, oh, they're presenting a particular, you know, macho world, and yeah. you know, that's that's true to the characters. But yeah. I do think you can also level the criticism of um, the filmmaker has no interest in interrogating the interior lives of any yeah. of the females that happen to um, enter this world. Or be- yeah, and all the all the better given like rich like you know melancholic emotions to play, but yeah, you know. and that's that's even leaving aside the fact that they're mistreated because that that yeah. could be accurate to the world you're portraying, yeah. and it often is if you're portraying any point in history yeah. that features women and men. Um, but that's that still doesn't that's mean, the case that still doesn't excuse the fact that the that they're not afforded like any space in the narrative beyond that. I mean, and you could you could make that into a symbolic thrust of the movie too. I think that's true, but that's not like what the that's not what it is, you know. No, no, no. Because <laughs> um, this is this isn't a film about like misogyny either. It's just about no. you know I don't know the West dying. Who cares? I was like, <laughs> yeah, I know okay. the West dying stuff is is so like played out at this point. I know that it was obviously fresher um, when this was released. Yeah, but. Uh, I I definitely I definitely enjoyed some of the more like. Um, uh, sort of like class elements of it, uh, but I didn't mm. think they were particularly. 
uh, well explicated, I guess is how I put it. Mm. Uh, but I, I still think it's 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 more interesting to have that be present, supposed to be like I don't know, like a fistful of dollars, right? Yeah, yeah. Which which is probably a better movie, but you know. <laughs> and I like the uh, I don't know. I like that you know eventually like even even Garrett's like. Uh, selling his soul to the the corporation doesn't save Bethan, you know, and he still gets wasted like a like a dog. Yeah, yeah, and I I do like the fact that that is like foreshadowed at the start of the film. Yeah, uh, and I like the I like the way the movie ended too, with just that freeze frame of him riding off. Hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, all, all in all, I think it's it, it's like fine. It's not particularly my cup of tea. I mean, I think it's no. like pretty handsomely winced. Um, you know, I, I guess like, the two central performances are pretty good. Um, and then, yeah, again, there's like certain sequences and I, I like the, you know, all the character actors that's, that pop up, like, you know, it's always nice to see Harry Dean Stan and like Slim Pickens in a movie, you know? Anyway, so now, now we can uh, pivot to talking about the most important part of this film, mm. which is the presence uh, of Bob Dylan. So I will say, uh, if I can lead the discussion off, mm. that this is probably the most effective deployment of Dylan <laughs> in any film, maybe leaving us uh. in Anonymous. Well, definitely leave aside Master Anonymous. Okay, leaving aside Master Anonymous is probably the most effective deployment of, of Dylan in any film. In a fiction film. In a fiction film. Uh, which isn't to say that Dylan brings <laughs> much to the table, as you know. Nope. <laughs> you, you could probably cut him out and we lose absolutely nothing. <laughs> yeah, but like it's clear that Peckinpah is, is, you know, careful with the way he's using him and he's, he's using yeah. him quite sparingly. He doesn't get him to do very much. Um, there's only one scene where he has to have like an extended dialogue exchange, which is clearly kind of salvaged in ADR. <laughs> um, but it it features a scene in which um, James Coburn effectively directs Dylan at, at gunpoint and then orders him to read out the labels from a bunch of cans while the adults do some actual acting <laughs> in the foreground. <laughs> That's pretty funny. And I think that was like the best summation of, of Bob Dylan's uh, screen acting career. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I thought honestly, I, I, I thought he was pretty annoying in this. <laughs> it's I that. think there's slightly more of a performance in this film yeah. than in almost any other film. That he's <laughs> yeah. It just he just seemed to be making kind of an effort. Like there was a shot where he's supposed to look sad after Billy the Kid has been <laughs> shot, and he, he kind of looks sad. <laughs> um, I like to see where he kills the guy with the knife. <laughs> yeah, that was good. It's like. <laughs> It reminded me of like a superhero film or something. It's like, oh, we got to show this guy's powers. He's a knife guy, you know. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, it was clear that Peckinpah didn't like want him to be in the movie. And like, you know, he really like cuts around it. There's a lot of scenes where it's just like him, you know, in the film. Yeah. Um, so that, that was funny. Uh, I don't know but, so much about like Dylan appearing in the movie, but I know that he was happy with the music that he heard, that Dylan mm, was composing for it and stuff. Mm. So. And the music's pretty Maybe. good. Yeah, it is. Like beyond it uh, well. knocking on heaven's door, and I like the fact that the the theme song, which like relays the plot um, and plays mm. over the opening credits, makes it seem kind of like a TV western, like yeah. Rawhide or something. Yeah, yeah. Um, but other than that, I don't really know if there's anything else I have to say about this movie. <laughs> yeah, me either. Yeah. I'd be kind of curious to see the the preview cut actually. Yeah, me too. Well, that one's easier to track down than the cut that we watched, so. But I won't be watching it anytime soon. Nope. Maybe in uh, 30 years. Yeah. 
Knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. All right. Uh, shall we continue? More trivia. At the time he made the film, Chris Christopherson was how many years older than the character he was portraying? Uh, seven. Fifteen. Fifteen? Mm-hmm. So he was 36, Billy the Kid was supposed to be 21. Yeah, well, I'll take a drink. <laughs> yeah, it is kind of funny that they keep calling him the kid, even despite the fact that he looks like he's, he's got like a paunch, you know? <laughs> he looked like he was 36. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he does kind of have like a puffy kind of boyish, boyish face in yeah. some ways, but he also always looks like an old man at the same time. Yeah, for sure. He's got those like old man, like squinty eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Which kind of fit uh, the character, you know? Yeah. Right. I don't think it's a problem. Are you ready? Especially because they hint of like a, a like a long backstory between the two characters. And if he was only yeah. twenty one, what were they? Was like Coburn hanging around with like a teenager? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that I went to the you know uh, pedophilic subject. <laughs> um, okay, are you ready for? Uh... Yeah. Star James Coburn worked with Peck and Paw on a number of different occasions. Can you tell me one of their other collaborations? The Wild Bunch? Ooh, that is incorrect. The other two movies he was in were... Um, is he not in The Wild Bunch? He might be. <laughs> no, he's... He is not. Okay. He is Bring in... Um, Alfredo Garcia? No, he's in, uh, 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 I looked this up earlier. Now I'm biking Major Dundee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, uh, uh oh, Cross of Iron. That's the other one that he's in. So, mm, okay. So nice try, bro. I wouldn't have got that. <laughs> Well, you, you're trying to get me to guess someone's age, so... <laughs> Sam Peckinpah's great-grandfather is named mm. after which grain? <laughs> fuck off, fuck off. Uh, barley. No, <laughs> rice. <laughs> rice Peckinpah. Okay, fuck you. Fuck you. <laughs> well, I, yeah, I bet you just have to guess a grain. You had like a one in, you know, three or four chance in terms of the obvious grades. What are you, there's tons of grades. Uh, the first day Dylan arrived on set was quite an interesting one. Can you tell me, spurred on by alcoholism, which obscene action Peck and Paul took when displeased with the dailies that him, uh, Dylan, and Chris Christopherson were watching? I can indeed, because uh, not only did I already know this story, but I was almost going to make this my own trivia question for you. Um, he stood Damn on it. one of the chairs and urinated on the screen. Damn it. Damn it. 
Alright, well, I'm taking a drink. Okay, your turn, bucko. <clears throat> Here's a tricky one. What year mm. was the film Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid released? Uh, 1973. Correct. <laughs> I said that earlier in my summary, so... I know. <laughs> Did you? <laughs> You're playing the guitar. Alright, so uh, take a drink. Yep, done. Okay, here's my last trivia question. The film was in part edited by future director Roger Spottiswood. Can you tell me which Bond film he ended up directing? Roger Spottiswood, um, The Living Daylights? That is incorrect. The correct answer is Tomorrow Never Dies. Ah, okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a okay Bond movie. I remember not it not being too bad when I saw it in the movies, but I've never seen it. So. got Michelle Yeoh. We will watch it again, won't we? Yeah, when we see our pods, pod, pod project. <laughs> All right, um, that's it. That's trivia. Let's move on to bonus features quickly. Bonus features. Bonus. Bonus features. Bonus features. Bonus. So, the uh, first film that I watched as part of my bonus features was uh, I watched two different versions of Orson Welles' Macbeth, um, which was uh, made for the Poverty Row studio of Republic Pictures in uh, the year of 1948. Um, So, basically, the film is kind of an interesting story, as I think all of uh, Welles' films do to some degree, which Mm -hmm. is that... uh, uh, when he first uh, made it, he uh, got everyone to do a sort of Scottish brogue, um, <laughs> which, <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, uh, the studio was not particularly pleased with. Uh, this this version, I think, played at Venice and had some other festival festival uh, releases, and the head of the studio got Wells to re-cut uh, it and re-record a lot of the dialogue <laughs> in uh, standard Igl- uh, American English. Wow. Um, yeah. Um, so I watched, I, I have a Blu-ray that I got put out that has both versions. Uh, unlike a lot of uh, Wells' films previous to this one, the alternative versions of the film are uh, pretty readily available. And one of the appeals for him for working with uh, at Republic Pictures instead of one of the major studios is that he was given like, a pretty large degree of creative control. And mm-hmm. uh, unlike a, a lot of his other films, uh, which were taken away from him and cut, it with, cut without his consent, uh, he was able to supervise the re-edits, even if the uh, resulting film feels butchered. And uh, honestly, you can barely understand the dialogue in either version. So, <laughs> uh, But it kind of doesn't matter because, you know, you're not watching this uh, for Macbeth. You're watching it for... Uh, McWells. Yeah, McWells. You're watching it for the beautiful imagery uh, Wells is able to conjure up in the sparsest of means. Uh, apparently, a lot of the sets were re-dressed Western sets. Um, and the film looks absolutely gorgeous. Uh, it has this great atmosphere, uh, very thick with witchcraft and mischief, and is a beautiful and compelling film. Uh, even if it doesn't really have that uh, much interesting to say about Macbeth, the way that it is filmed uh, and uh, you know the sheer verve of Wells' technique makes it uh, a worth, worth a watch, I think. Again, I know uh, there's some controversy just, about the the authorship of the screenplay to Macbeth. Was there not? 
Um, I don't think so. Not that, not that well, I'm because aware like of, the the question that the people ask is like, who was the true, you know, um, oh God, who was I the real? You. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat the shit out of you. <laughs> was it Orson Welles or was it <laughs> William Man- <laughs> Manksphere? <laughs> Vegas beer, a Vegas beer. <laughs> <laughs> he was the prop guy. <laughs> um, well, uh, as as Wells did previous to this film, uh, he, there's, it's quite an edited version of uh, Macbeth, and he actually invents the character whole cloth. So, McDougal. Okay. <laughs> uh, so that's that's Orson Welles' Macbeth. Um, I followed that up with McFeist. Does he add McFeist? The vinyl of uh, Fritz Lang. No, not McFeist. Uh, What's the guy's Mabuza? name? Times of Midnight. Uh, McBain. Um, <laughs> the guy's name. Falstaff. Falstaff. McFalstaff. Does he add McFalstaff to McBain? <laughs> He's like, Lady Macbeth, my cousin <laughs> McFaultstaff is do you, want me to keep, do you want me to keep going or not? I welcome. So, uh, I watched the uh, third and final um, uh, Dr. Mabuza film that uh, Fritz Lang made, The Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuza, which reconfigures uh, the Mabuza character into a uh, sort of espionage thriller. Well, not really, but it is all about surveillance and... Um, just a great cracking adventure time, uh, and uh, the uh, plot is extremely enjoyable. Just an enjoyable film all around. I don't really, I don't know what else to say. <laughs> my mind's kind of going, going blank forever. Maybe I've been hypnotized by Doctor Mabuza. Um, then I watched a film I think will be of great interest to you, which is uh, a director who uh, you know we once did an entire podcast about. Bob Dylan. Get a guess? No. Richard Marquand? No, no, an entire podcast uh, series, uh, not just a, a mere uh, season of a podcast. Um, so I'm talking about the acclaimed filmmaker Michael Crichton. <laughs> <laughs> Why are you watching Crichton films outside of uh, For Christ's Sake? Uh, because one of my friends uh, recommended to me, actually. <laughs> Uh, but I watched his 1981 uh, Albert Finney vehicle called Wooker. Uh, That's one with the great theme song, right? Uh, yeah, she's the Wooker. Um, anyway, uh, so Wooker is a movie about Albert Finney plays a plastic surgeon. I don't want to hear about this until we get up to it on For Christ's Sake. Okay, okay, okay. I'll, I'll, I'll spare you the pot, but it is uh, extremely entertaining. So that's okay. Wooker. All right. Um, yeah, like 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 whatever like whatever we're gonna do uh, for Christ's sake, kid. Of course we are, man. <laughs> uh, so after that, I rewatched The Third Man, just a uh, great film, top to bottom. <laughs> it's one of those films that you go into it every time I've, I've gone into it. I'm like, you know, uh, all these people love this movie. Am I really gonna like it as much? And I'm like, yeah, yep, this is great. <laughs> yeah, I like it's it more. Dessert. Now that I classic. ever did, and I used to love it, um, and I wasn't expecting it to still hold up or hold the same place in my heart. But it seems to get better every time I watch it. Actually, it's just a it's just an absolutely splendid film. Or I find a new way to appreciate it. Uh, I just I just love every every moment of it. Pretty much, there's it basically there's nothing wrong with it. It's 
I love the, I, 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 to the, the this time around. I especially love the narration that opens the film. Um, but uh, just I just prefer it to every film Orson Welles has ever made. Well, I certainly don't. But uh, anyway, so after that, I watched uh, the final of the high sci era Godzilla movies. That's right, I'm bringing it back, baby. Wow. Uh, Godzilla versus Destroyer, which I had heard pretty good things about, which was actually very boring. <laughs> And it took me uh, three or four days to watch this like hour and forty minute movie because I kept on uh, being bored and looking at my phone. Um, yeah, it's not not very not especially notable film except for it's the one where Godzilla dies and then immediately comes back in the next one. Um, so uh, pretty pretty average. Uh, after that, I decided that I would rewatch uh, La Point Court, the Agnes Varda film, mm. um, which I have to say I, I don't think I liked quite as much as the first time. The uh, <laughs> the bits with the couple kind of grated on me more than they did the first ever out, <laughs> if I'm being honest. Um, but I still think it is a beautiful film. And, uh, assured and um, entertaining debut. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how you describe it, right? <laughs> um, and then I watched. Uh, I watched. I decided that you know it's been kind of a, a rough couple of weeks. I haven't been sleeping that well. Been going through some personal stuff. Uh, so I, I turned to one of my favorite sources of comfort film, uh, which are the uh, Oceans uh, series of movies. I watched all three of them uh, basically on subsequent days, and uh, yeah, just all three. Um, you know, you know, uh, you, you watch a blockbuster like Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's Twelve or Ocean's Thirteen, and you watch any blockbuster movie that's been released in the last, let's say, ten years. When did Ocean's Thirteen come out? <laughs> yeah, let's say, let's say ten years, and and nothing, nothing lives up to it. So, <laughs> do you like all three? Yeah, yeah. You know what? I used to be, uh, uh, I used to uh, particularly like the the uh, number one and number two. Um, and then think thirteen was kind of bad, but uh, on this rewatch, I was like, you know what, thirteen is pretty pretty good still. So, I like all three. I like all three. Just just a good just good mood movies, you know. You just want to hang out, turn your brain off, just watch, you know, attractive people do attractive things for for two hours. They're witty, they're fun, they're a good time. I will say that the Don Cheadle's Cockney accent is only slightly worse than Rupert Everett's uh, <laughs> accent in Hearts of Fire. <laughs> but it's supposed to be a joke in those shit movies. Is that supposed to be a joke? I've only seen it once at the movies when it came I, out. I think so. <laughs> I mean, it's funny, so I would imagine it's Hopefully supposed, it's to, supposed, be supposed to be a joke. It's really fake. It's really, it's, it's good stuff. All right, so... Um, I also watched two other uh, Annie Sparta films, another which I've talked about on the show before. I watched Cleo from 5 to 7. Have you seen that? Of course. Uh, just a great film. Uh, I don't need to go into details, but it's just, uh, you know, uh, really uh, embodies all the elements that I like about new wave films. And um, I, I thought it was really great. So uh, I have an I interesting story. So I bought an HDMI cable to connect mm. my computer to my television set. Mm-hmm. in order to watch things that I can only stream on my computer and my TV. Mm-hmm. And the film I used to test the connection was, in fact, Cleo mm-hmm. from 5 to 7. When was Isn't this? that interesting? Hmm? Was it this week? Was it, was it no, this, this was, oh, okay. I bought it a, okay. a few weeks ago. Okay. okay. Well, that, that would still be the period covered by this. 
Um, but I'd never seen it before. No, it lived up to its reputation. Um, it's a uh, delightful, magnificent, moving film, I think. Uh, I, 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 sorry, I didn't. I, maybe I implied that I watched the film. I only just tested it by watching the start of the film. <laughs> oh, oh, okay, okay. Um, so it's but not part of my great, great film. Great film. Uh, and then I watched uh, some dumb bonus features on the Clio from 5 to 7 uh, uh, discs that I, I are pretty much not worth mentioning, except for one, which uh, was this short film called Clio's Real Itinerary Through Paris. Okay, mm. I'm going to mention this only because it, it basically uh, you know, is like, it's like showing you the locations of the film in modern day. Uh, but when I was watching this movie, I thought I was going to have a heart attack or something because uh, the way that they film it is on motorcycle, right? And the guy or the woman who is driving the motorcycle uh, drives like an absolute maniac. And <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, this person's going to die uh, several times. Uh, so <laughs> I don't think it's worth watching, especially. But uh, I did think that was uh, alarming. Uh, I watched a uh, fundamental Jackie Chan film that I had actually never seen before. Can you believe that? Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched Drunken Master for the first time. Wow. And uh, you know what? Uh, Drunken Master is great. <laughs> to the shock of no one. Um, I liked how kind of low stakes it is, honestly. <laughs> the plot's very, like, ramshackle. It's an optimist, and, and these are only, like, Chan films. I mean, I guess in all of his films, pretty much. But uh, this one feels especially, like, stakeless. Like, you don't even, like, you know, the villain isn't really revealed until the last, like, <laughs> moment of the film. And you're like, oh, okay. Uh, but uh, it's really funny. Uh, obviously, Jackie Chan is great. And it's got this just just very, very enjoyable atmosphere uh, and some of the best uh, martial arts you can find anywhere. So that's, that's Drunken Master. Um, and the only other movie I watched is uh, Agnes Barta's Le Bonheur, uh, which is a pretty uh, chilling movie um, about uh, a man who uh, starts shooting on his wife uh, and uh, bad things happen. <laughs> but uh, the fact that the, the movie, um, it's it, uh, someone compared it to Starship Troopers, and I kind of get that, where it kind of ironically takes on the perspective of this man who... Um, sees very much nothing wrong with the actions that he's committing. <laughs> I'll put it like that. Um, and uh, I really liked it a lot. I had, I'd seen it previously, and this uh, reinforced it as a, a very, uh, en- not enjoyable, but I think... Uh, uh, and a short and moving. compelling debut. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. <laughs> uh, that's it. That's all I got. Uh, okay, so the first film I watched um, since recording the last episode uh, is a film that we will feature later as part of this uh, ongoing music project, so I won't mm. mention it yet. And I'll skip to the <laughs> next film, which was directed by a director that you watched some films of. Mm. And that film is Solaris. Oh, from 2002. I've seen that. You have seen that. I remember being okay. Um, okay is probably the uh, the word I would use as well. Not great. Okay. Um, it's interesting that um, at least as at some point as part of like the pre-publicity for this film, um, mm. Steven Soderbergh says the thing that most people say when they remake a film that is considered a classic and which was based on a book 
Oh, this one will be closer to the book. This is based on the book, not the previous <laughs> film. Right. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, now, the author of the original book, Stanislaw Lem, mm. um, isn't fond of either adaptation. And he had issues <laughs> with the original funny. because it you know, focused too much on the human dimension, the human psychology. Mm. When the whole point of the book is about the... Um, inability for humanity to communicate with this creature that is so completely Mm. alien and foreign to its um, Mm. experience. Like, that's kind of the point of the novel. Like, you don't get the resolution in the novel as to what this being even really is. You just get the way that it Mm. affects the human characters and the way that they, no matter what they do, they can't find a way to actually bridge the gap that that divides the two Mm. um, entities. Mm. Um, and, um, so it's not, I haven't read the novel. I'm just going by some of his comments, but he said uh-huh. if it was about the human characters, he would have called it love in space, not Solaris. <laughs> but anyway, the, of the two adaptations, <laughs> pretty, pretty the funny. one that is closest to love in space is the Steven Soderbergh one. Yeah, for sure. Where the Solaris being like recedes from the film even more than it does from the Tarkovsky version. Cause I think yeah. the Tarkovsky version still like manages to capture the unknowability of this, this entity. Um, mm. even while it, it focuses a lot on the, the backstory and the psych, the psychology and the philosophy of, um, the main character. Mm. Um, and, uh, I think the problem with this new version, although it's fine to do your own spin and to focus it where you want to focus it, because I don't think mm. adaptations should be transcriptions of a book mm. um, when you're going from different mediums. Uh, but there is a, the the Solaris in this film looks like crap. <laughs> it just yeah. is like a bunch of like generic CGI nonsense, like almost like a stock effect as opposed to like a bespoke effect or something that you'd find mm. in After Effects, like generic kind of like electricity or something, generic mm. space electricity. Um, it feels like they've used, but anyway, obviously the focus of this film is more about, um, the central character's, um, experience with his own past Mm. and his relationship with, um, his, uh, ex-wife. I guess his wife who died or whatever it was. (laughs) Okay, bro. Let's, uh, let's, uh, you know, Um, this kind of falls into the category of, th- of things that came after it that we discussed on this podcast, like Ad Astra and um, First Man, where you have kind of this mm. remote sort of male protagonist. Two films that I quite enjoy. <laughs> Coming to terms with like their past and their own personal issues mm. while ostensibly exploring space or some shit. Um, I actually really liked Natasha uh, McAlone's performance. Thought she was really good in it. She was the strongest part. Um, and then there was this guy who like plays like a twitchy character in this. I'm like, oh, that guy's so annoying. I was like, why do, why do I recognize him? Giovanni Urbisi. Nope. Recognize it from. Uh, isn't he in this? Nope. You are thinking oh, it's of. Oh, it's the the other, other guy. What's his name? You're thinking um, of Tom Tom from the Million Dollar Hotel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh my like, god, that fucking guy. Jesus <laughs> Man, we should we should rewatch. We should do Billy Tower of Talent. Like Rattle and Hob is one of the, the music project. 
It is quite an interesting <laughs> cast beyond George Jeremy Clooney, Davies, Natasha Jeremy McElhone, Davies. Viola Davis, and um, yeah, Jeremy Davis, is that his name? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so they're the four people on the space station outside the Solaris planet. Um, <sighs> okay, come on, man. What am I? Oh, all right, more. <laughs> I watched five minutes already. <laughs> I watched Starman. Mm. Rewatched Starman, rather, which was a John Carpenter mm. film I've always enjoyed. Mm, never seen um, it. In some respects, it's it's one of the more conventional of his films, um, mm. and it was initially like being developed at the same time as like ET, and then it kind of got shelved and like retooled after ET came out and stuff like that. Mm. Um, so he kind of stepped into this project, but I think he does a really good job anyway. I don't think it entirely escapes the tedium of like the road movie format, mm. kind of escape from authorities business, but I think both of the leads are really good. Uh, they being, um, what's his name and what's her name? Karen Allen and Jeff Bridges are both really good in it. I think as an enjoyable fun film, I think I, I really enjoy it. I've got a soft spot for Starman. Even if I don't think it's necessarily Carpenter's best. Then I watched uh, California Split, or did I? I kind of did. Um, And the reason I watched this is because um, I thought I was getting the proper version. So I know there's Mm. been some issue with music rights that prevented it from being available on physical media, except Mm. in a compromised form. Mm-hmm. And apparently that was recently resolved with an Amazon streaming release. Um, there's also been issues with it being um, in the wrong aspect ratio, so similar to what we experienced with Hearts of Fire. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I was going. This is a film I rented from whatever streaming service I was using, mm-hmm. and I tested it. I watched a little bit, and I was like, "Oh yeah, it's the right aspect ratio. It's got the letterbox bars." Mm. So then I bought it. But it does that thing that also happens in Hearts of Fire where it's in the right aspect ratio for the credits because you can't crop out, you can't frame it without losing parts of the credits. But then as soon as the movie starts, it's, it goes into 16, nine instead of the even one, which is annoying. And that frustrated me and I was kind of zoning in and out of the film because I was, I'd already bought it. So it felt like I was, I was, it's like a sunk cost thing. So I watched it, mm. even though I now intend to find the proper version and watch it at a later date in order to evaluate it properly because I think you lose uh-huh. a lot of the visual side of this film. Uh-huh. Um, then I rewatched another John Carpenter film, Escape from L.A., which uh, is great, as you know. Wait, what did you, you think about the compromised version of uh, California Split? <laughs> I was like almost falling asleep, so I can't even give it oh, a proper okay. assessment. Okay. Fair enough. So I'm just going to put it on the back burner and not even have an opinion about it until I rewatch it at the proper aspect ratio. I rewatched Escape from L.A. Great. Great stuff. Perfect. You once said you might prefer it to Escape from New York. Mm. Maybe I do too. (laughs) Except for the kind of like, there is like that, the stuff with um, Pam Greer feels like transphobic. It's definitely strange. A little bit. It's odd. It's, it's, yeah, it's hard to, cause obviously like, she's like one of the, the like good guys, you know, on the film. In, in some sense, it feels like uh, if you just think of it as like what's on the page and you separate it from the casting, it's kind of positive 
um, in that she asserts her right yeah. to be identified yeah. as, uh, as a woman. It's definitely and of no its one really time. questions it beyond the initial confusion. Mm. And then she is one of the good guys. But the fact that it's like Pam Greer with a pitch altered yeah. voice makes it in yeah. practice kind of transphobic, I would say. Because it feels like a joke. Yeah, kind of. I, mean, I don't know. If it were, even if it was just Pam Greer, it would have been fine as yeah. well. But if it, the pitch shifted voice feels off to me, that's the only like sound note yeah. in the film. I would say it's, the, it's definitely like on the, this time, you know. The surfing sequence um, where great. they're chasing down um, <laughs> uh, what's his name, yeah. Cadillac. Yeah, Quavo Jones or whatever. Yeah. Um, is is one of the best sequences in in cinema in history. Cinema. Yeah, I agree. Not just Carpenter's own catalogue, but no. in all of yeah. cinema. Yep. And it doesn't really have any like particular relevance to the plot as well. Mm. It just feels like they wanted to do that, and the CGI yeah. is kind of transcendently awful at points. Yeah, agreed. And the last one I watched was Twenty Feet from Stardom. Why did I watch this? So this is a film about um, backup singers. It's never Chris O'Dowd or is it a different movie? No, it's a documentary. No, okay, never mind. You're thinking of Juliet Naked. <laughs> nope. <laughs> I don't know what you're thinking of then. Uh, um, so why did they watch Twenty Feet from Stardom? The Sapphires, because is that what I'm thinking of? The Sapphires. Oh, yeah, that's what you are thinking of. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Which I've watched I and discussed on this podcast. <laughs> I figured it out. 20 Feet from Stardom is about is a documentary about backup singers, and the focus is the fact that they, you know, their contribution is often backup. neglected or marginalized in, famous, mm. in favor of the artist that they are backing up, yeah. as it were. And this is kind of celebrating them and telling their stories. Um, like most documentaries of this type, it feels like it it's sucks. appropriate uh, form. It's appropriate um, venue is like um, PBS uh, on a Sunday afternoon or something, mm. <laughs> as opposed to like paying a to see movie. this in the cinema. Um, the only reason I watched it because Gloria Jones was in it. <laughs> the only reason Mark I watched Bowen's, it because uh, Gloria Jones was in it because Mark Gloria Bowen's Jones fair, was with Mark Bowling for a brief period. The end. <laughs> Because she was 20 feet from his stardom. <laughs> well, hopefully closer. <laughs> okay, do you watch anything else? Is that it? No. All right, I'm done. I'm hitting the end button. Oh.